Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills. I'm Dr. Bob Lawrence. It's time to discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Well, we've been hitting it hard for the entire month exploring the key of E major with an extensive harmonic workout, pretty intense melodic workout, and of course, last week we we jumped on Honeysuckle Rose learning that tune in what key? You got it, in the key of E major. So today, I thought it would be a good time to kind of celebrate, to take a break from all of our hard work throughout the month, and sit back to enjoy my special guest, Mr. Ron Drotos. Now, Ron is an incredibly gifted jazz pianist with his hands in all kinds of professional activities. He spent his teenage years playing in jazz and rock bands, And back in 1985, he received a bachelor's degree in music composition from the University of Connecticut. During that time, Ron studied with Hale Smith. He also studied with legendary jazz pianist and educator Dr. Billy Taylor, Walter Bishop Jr., Harold Danko, and Ellen Rowe. Now, from 87 to 88, Ron worked as an assistant to the legendary baritone saxophonist Jerry Mulligan. And then he began to pursue a music career of his own. After moving to New York City in 89, Ron served as associate music director, creating orchestrations for the Broadway musical Swinging on a Star, which received a Tony Award nomination for Best Musical in 1995. Additional Broadway credits include Smokey Joe's Cafe, The Life, and Fosse. Ron has orchestrated for the New York Pops Orchestra, which, with, with whom he has appeared several times at Carnegie Hall. He has been featured as music director on the 92nd Street Wise famed Lyrics and Lyricist series and has performed with many vocalists, including Julius LaRosa, Judy Collins, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Nell Carter, and Giacomo Gates. In addition, Ron has taught at the Fairbanks, Alaska Summer Arts Festival since 1999, where he he has been inducted into the festival's Hall of Fame. In 2012, Ron created the KeyboardImprov.com website, through which he helps beginning to advanced pianists all over the world learn how to improvise with with a sense of joy and fluency. In addition, Ron is the author of The Inner Game of Piano Improvisation, which is available on Amazon. Well, I could go on and on, but let's get to my interview with Ron. Now, both audio and video formats are available for this podcast episode. And of course, you can listen to the audio version of the episode through any of the popular podcast directories, such as iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and so on. Or you can go directly to the jazzpianoskillspodcast.com website where you can listen to the podcast as well as check out the video, which I strongly recommend doing. Now, it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, Mr. Ron Drotos. Ron Drotos. Yes. <laughs> Man, welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, my friend. Well, thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Man, you know, it, you and I have been trying to connect for the last couple months. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, we, your schedule is crazy. My schedule is crazy. 
But I am so thrilled that we both have carved out some time to sit down together, connect, and talk jazz. And I'm thrilled to introduce you to the jazz piano skills community because if they don't already know you, uh, if they do already know you, I know they love you. And if they don't know you, I know they're going to fall in love with you. So it's I'm thrilled that you're here. So thank you uh, from from my heart to all the jazz piano skills listeners. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, it's great to be here, Bob. And, you know, it's great. It occurs to me that, you know, pianists in the old pre-internet days, we never hung out together because there's only one <laughs> pianist in each rehearsal or gig, right? And now right. we can actually uh, talk shop, right? Yeah, we can interact and mingle with one another. So, yeah. man, okay, look, we, we got about an hour. And, and right. I really, I mean, looking at your bio, looking at your credentials, looking at your background, there's no, we're going to be, there's no way we're going to get everything in an hour, but we're going to try. So this All is going right. to be a fast hour. So we're going to just jump in. I want to I want to hand the microphone over to you. And before we get into all the stuff that you're doing professionally today, I want you to rewind the clock, go back to the very beginning, your childhood, and fill us in on Ron, your family, your background, how you got into music, and how you got to where you are today. So my friend, the microphone is yours. Awesome. All right. So uh, I, my journey is a little unusual for, for pianists. Uh, I didn't have uh, piano lessons my whole upbringing. Wow. My father had played. Um, uh, he was the he was the first rock and roll generation, you know, so he would have been a teenager in the late, late 50s. Right. And, and he had uh, he was playing sax clarinet at that time, early rock and roll. Like Bill, I remember seeing like combo charts for Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis. Wow. But it was also swing era stuff. So he would play at the country clubs, play saxophone every summer. When whenever the, the when the older professionals took um, a vacation, he would start on lead alto, then second alto, wow. whatever. Two weeks as a high school student, and but he um, he played football in college and, and messed up his teeth or something. His embouchure. <laughs> so he was learning piano as I was growing up, and and he would play you know these you know sort of like Basin Street Blues with a, a, a stiff kind of a, a, a I'd call it a medium stiff stride like. Right. But I got that. I, that, that, I, um, I, I, that I like it, man. I'd sit and listen to that, man. So that's great. good. He was great. He was great, right? <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so, like, I, I got to absorb that early sort of looking back. I got to absorb that early pre-bebop feeling yeah. that I eventually got. I'll talk uh, talking a while with uh, Billy Taylor and a musician named Hale Smith, who also had developed their styles pre-bebop. So. Um, no, no, he had, he had a really nice, um, uh, steady tempo. My dad, he played about three or four songs and I heard them a lot. And I also remember like once or twice a week, we would, um, my sister and I would sit around the piano and we'd sing, um, nice. you know, pop songs of the late sixties, like puff the magic dragon, nice. and, you know, the purple people eater song, you know, things that right. kids like he probably, yeah. so, so dad, dad would play and you guys dad would sing, play and we would sing along, which I think is it's kind of disappearing these days, right? Yeah, it you know, sure is. you know the family yeah. sitting around the piano, yeah. and uh, it wasn't yeah. even a piano; it was just a, it was an old Wurlitzer electric piano my uncle had given them, right? And, <laughs> the, and, old, the, the little yeah. black, the little black Wurlitzer. It, the, it was actually uh, beige. Oh, was, oh, the, the, oh, yeah. Oh, I, don't, I know exactly which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, it was probably from like I don't know, 65, 66, <laughs> 67. Yeah, classic. And, yep, yeah, definitely. So we, um, so we got a lot of piano, uh, a lot of music in the family. My dad would play acoustic guitar too. And, um, so did mom, uh, did mom play, did mom play at mom, all? No, she was always the quote, non-musical person. 
but she would sing harmony in the car along with the radio. And then years later, I discovered an old LP from the fifties. She was in like the, the Long Island, all state New York choir or something. And I said, but you never told me about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty musical for being non-musical. Well, there you go. Exactly right. She's the <laughs> harmony, which, which I'm not even that great at. So, um, so, so, you know, I think I don't, looking back, I don't, I don't think we could afford piano lessons, even if I asked for them, but I, I started right. my first experience at the piano at age, I don't know, five or something was, was imagining what dinosaurs would sound like. And then I would, you know, be the Brontosaurus and the, the oh, pterodactyls, wow. and I would, I would make these big battles with dinosaurs. Wow. And I, I think my parents encouraged that, but they also said, well, we don't want to listen to this all day. <laughs> so um, my dad, I never forget this. His way of teaching me was he went to the, we were living in New Jersey and um, Teaneck, New Jersey. He went to the Paramus Mall. They must have had a, a music store there. And he, he came back with the Alfred Dauberger oh, yeah. right. method, that right. sort of, um, you know, yeah. uh, um, general, old world general type with yep. the hat. Oh, and yeah. uh, and he basically is the primer level, and he basically said, "Okay, um, this is what a middle C looks like. You hold it for four beats. When you're finished with the book, let me know, and I'm going to test you on every piece." <laughs> and he goes, "And if you can play every piece, I'll then um, get you the, the the next volume, volume one." Right. So I said, "Okay," and I remember going through the whole book, and I got to the second to last piece, which you'll recognize. It's that Bach musette. I was probably six at the time. That got me. I mean, oh boy, I, I just couldn't get that hand independence. Right. And, and I, but I remember thinking, if I can get this, it's going to be smoother sailing after that forever. And it probably took me about a month to get that. And so one day he comes home from work, and I said, I got the whole book. And he's like, Okay, play that one. Play that one. Play that one. And I, I didn't have to memorize it, but I could play the whole book. So he, the next day, he brought me book. Book one, and looking back, it's amazing because a lot of times when, when we take um, lessons, you know, um, uh, even with the, the best teachers, we tend not to play the pieces. Like you don't have to learn thirty pieces and retain them all. Right. right. Go on to the next, and and I had to keep that almost like a pop musician who's still playing Jumpin' Jack Flash after you know, right, right, years, right, right. Rock. So, um, so that was. I think that it got in me physically. And in my ear, really well. I still remember a lot of those early songs. Yeah. So and at this they, time, at this time, you're what age? What age are you? Right uh, now? That was about six. About seven, six years old. Okay. Something like that. Five, six, seven. And then I, I played trumpet in elementary school, and then um, rock guitar with my friends in middle school, and then my guitar broke at age uh, fifteen or so. And I and I and my friends were forming a rock band in, in high school, and I said, okay, I'm just gonna. I keep coming back to the piano in between trumpet and guitar in this, so I'm just gonna stay with piano. Now and I and I became serious. I started playing three hours a day, no matter what. Fantastic. Three hours a day from from about age fifteen, sixteen on. Yeah, so it was it was about the, that that high school that high school time where you started getting serious. That's right. So in the rock band, we're playing um, uh, Pink Floyd's "Comfortably Numb," and I'm improvising. You know, and uh, and, and then some some jazzy stuff, um, and and picking up what I can here and there, taking some theory lessons. We had a very good. Um, this is I was in Connecticut by this time. We had a very good high school music program. I got to take jazz arranging. Um, oh wow! Now, we had now jazz arranging two times yeah. a week. Well, see, that's very unique. That's very yeah. unique, especially at that time, right? I mean, I'm not even sure even today if that 
they have jazz arranging in high schools? Yeah, this would have been um, around 1980, around 1980. And a yeah. wonderful teacher, in, uh, Fred Pasqua, who had gone to New England Conservatory for classical uh, clarinet, right. took lessons at Berkeley. And so wow. he was trying to pass some of that along. So I did an arrangement of Put on a Happy Face, I remember, and, right. you know, big band arrangements and small group. And uh, probably really important for me as a teenager was that there was this um, uh, uh, culture of experimentation, like like my band and my friends who played. We were we were into Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Frank Zappa, all these musicians who would play classical one minute, jazz the next, right. rock, punk, right. Right. no boundaries at all. And so even right. though we couldn't even play, um, we, we we would just try anything, crazy. Right. Yeah. No so. So who was, okay, so you get to high school, you've been, you know, you you really had like, you're working through the, like the Alfred books or the, you know, the traditional mm. beginning piano books, you're kind of doing the rock and roll thing. You got your buddies, you're doing the garage band, the garage band scene and, and playing and playing yeah. pop and rock tunes. You get this guy in high school that introduces you to jazz. Um, I'm just curious, who was like the, who was like the very first jazz musician at that stage that you listened to? that that turned you on that you went like whoa wait a minute i've got to study this genre i got i got to play jazz who who was that yeah there's two levels to this answer keith jarrett is the okay, most wow. the colm concert i must have heard it about four years oh, yeah. after it came out right, right you know i just remember listen i had no idea what he was doing but the colm concert you know which is biggest right. selling solo piano record but the interesting thing is so that was about 50, that was age age 15 when i i got turned right. on to the home concert and then his early stuff like uh there's an album called uh nude ants which is like new dance spelled yeah, yeah, different yeah. Yeah, yeah. vanguard I used to listen to that this is before a standards trio you know and right. um but um it, co uh, coincidentally though I, I heard um elton john last february of uh, 2022 for the first time it was his second to last show maybe no it was his last show at Madison Square Garden ever, um, so wow. to speak. Who knows if we'll come back. But, um, but yeah, because uh, he, he's been doing his final tour now for what, eight years? For like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he said it's his last show. Well, we'll see what happens. But, but the interesting thing is um, he starts his third song that night was Border Song. Okay. And, and played it solo without his band. Wow. And I'm listening to it. And after about, I don't know, a chorus or so, tears start streaming down my face. I'm like in the last row at the garden crying. And I realized that, that before I got into Jarrett, when I was about 14, I got a cassette tape of Elton John's greatest hits. It was the first one I ever bought. And that was on there. Oh, yeah. So, so, so I, I haven't been crediting Elton as being as yeah. big an influence. Yeah. Uh, so that, that you heard that and that took you back, didn't it? It really did. I mean, yeah. it was just unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so, interesting. You know, you and I are probably about the same age, you know, high school during the seventies, um, is that when you went to high school or my old? Yeah, uh, 78 to like 81, 82. Okay, somewhere. so I'm a little older than you. I graduated in 79. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, but I kind of, I was, it was, I, I kind of, my path was kind of the same path that you, you took, right? I was kind of poking mm -hmm. around. The, I started as a drummer. So I was playing rock and roll drums in, in, in the garage bands. And, um, I would always be fascinated with the piano players. And so I, I started playing some, poking around, playing some rock tunes on the piano. And, and I was introduced, my first introduction, this is hilarious because you mentioned this name earlier and we'll talk about that later, but uh, I remember this piano teacher put on some Oscar Peterson and I must have looked like a deer in headlights. Like, you know, my jaw must have been hanging on the floor. My eyes must have been glazed over or something because 
he only let me listen to about like three minutes and he took the needle off the took the needle off the record and said okay let's try something else you know because so so anyway he grabbed a billy taylor album ah and he put billy taylor on and it was interesting because billy taylor when i heard billy taylor I got very excited because that seemed kind of more like down to earth, straight ahead jazz. I mean, Oscar is a virtuoso, right? So he would just blew me away. So Billy Taylor was my first really first idol jazz idol that I admired that I started to try to emulate. Oh, wow. Small world. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Billy, when, when I, uh, when I was in college, you know, I was at the university of Connecticut and my freshman year, you know, this before the internet, right? And so this would have been uh, summer of 82, I think. Okay. Yeah, summer of 82, uh, summer of 83. So spring of 83, I saw a um, an ad that uh, at University of Massachusetts, they had a Jazz in July program, Billy Taylor. And I knew the name. And I said, because he wrote for Keyboard Magazine. Remember Keyboard Cur- Magazine? Oh, I sure do remember Keyboard yeah, Magazine. Yeah, temporary yes. keyboard at first. I was reading his yeah. articles. And I said, right. oh, I've got to check this out. So I sent in a cassette tape and got accepted. And uh, I went back for four summers and, and stayed in touch with him throughout the year. Very nice man. And, you know, we every, I didn't push it. But once in a while, you know, I'd ask him, hey, you want to go out to dinner? And so we, we got to dinner, a Chinese restaurant or something. And I'd go see him play. He made me some cassette tapes of then out of print albums by uh, Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington. And, it, you know, he was a direct connection with Art Tatum, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, have, you, have you read his book? It's um, a Jazz Piano, A History. Let me see. Let me let me see. I, I, do you happen to be talking about this one? Oh, unbelievable. Oh, oh, yeah, you're talking about this one. But, what do you think you're talking to, a hack here, man? What do you think? Unbelievable. <laughs> well, it's not a common book. It's not a common book. It's but. not a common book, but it's you know what? That I recommend that book all the time uh, mm. because I think it's, it's such a, a really concise and great way to get acclimated to the jazz scene, the history of jazz. It's, just, it's fabulous. Yeah, he tells a story in there, which which in retrospect, uh, sometimes gets me a little emotional. You know, why did he take an interest in this kid who I had a, maybe a, I had the spark, right? But I didn't have a lot of previous training and everything, but I was soaking up what, what he could absorb. But he tells the story in there, you, you, you'll remember, when he went to see Fats Waller and he was a mm-hmm. teenager and he wanted to ask Fats a question and, and he choked up, he, he froze up and Fats walked right by him. And he said he would never pass up the opportunity of asking one of the uh, masters a question. And I, I would ask millions of questions. How do you do this? What was it like doing that? And, yeah. and uh, I remember walking across campus with him to lunch and just like, you know, asking about Art Tatum and, and everything. And I think he saw a little bit of his younger self in me. Yeah. You know, we, we, we could have, if things would have been a little differently, we, we might have been neighbors, man, because... When I was finishing up my, I had finished my master's degree at the University of North Texas and was starting my doctorate degree, and he was down at UNT uh, doing a, you know, master classes and some clinics and stuff. And uh, uh, my classical teacher down there introduced me to him, and uh, we spent the week together. And he invited me to come to New York and 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 to study with him. And I had just started; I was really just in the beginning throes of my of my doctorate. And I thought about it and I told him uh, I was going to stay and finish my doctorate and then I would I would connect with him. Of course, 
that never happened because yeah. I just stayed and did my doctorate and then stayed in Texas. But I do recall him being such a nice, uh, such a nice guy. Yeah, really. And, and it, coincidentally, at, at, when I moved to New York, I lived in Manhattan for 16 years, but now I live right near his, his old neighborhood in wow. St. I saw him once, <clears throat> excuse me. I saw him once he had had a stroke and I didn't really follow up. I wanted to respect the fact that he had right. gotten more famous and yeah, everybody yeah. wants a piece of that. Right. But I, um, uh, my kid's babysitter lived in his building and we dropped her, dropped her off one day and I saw him getting in the elevator and I said, hi, and it's yeah, nice to that's awesome. Um, that's awesome. So, okay. So then you, so then you go to the university of Connecticut. Is that where you studied music? Is that where you're, is yes. that? Okay. So tell yeah. tell us a little about your formal education days and, in, in, in college days. Yeah. I, um, uh, I went for four and a half years because, uh, I just wanted to take the classes I wanted to take. I, I just got a, a bachelor's in music composition, classical composition. And um, at the same time, they had some jazz classes, and uh, there was a teacher named Ellen Rowe who was excellent, who led yeah. a jazz band. And my so first they, probably, year, they probably had jazz classes, but not a jazz degree. Is that correct? Correct. They might have yeah. a jazz degree now. I'm not sure, but they had jazz yeah. classes. And so they got Ellen, who was an excellent, uh, is an excellent teacher and a great person. And my first year was uh, I, I caught the end of the career of uh, um, someone, a uh, contemporary Billy Taylor's named Hale Smith. Mm. I don't know. He's a contemporary classical composer who had also played jazz around that same era as Billy. They were born in 25 and 24, respectively, or whichever. And uh, he could really get that stride going, you know, the walking tense and a slow, yeah, yeah. relaxed yeah. stride. He had played, but he was good friends with Dizzy Gillespie. He had taught Eric Dolphy how to play wow. somewhat. Wow. You know, these people would go to him. They, he, he and Eric worked out of Hindemith's elementary training for musicians. Wow. together. He taught Eric out of that, which is what may have led Dolphy to be able to hear those polychords and everything. Yeah. And, and Hale you know, was influence on me. Yeah. Hey, another real quick story on Billy Taylor. He was down here in Texas. I can't remember the exact year. It, it was in the nineties, I guess, late nineties. And he was playing at Borders Books and Records. Wow. You know, that's kind of like a, uh, Borders Books, and I don't know if you're familiar with that chain. Yeah, it's, it's no longer around, but it's kind of like a Barnes and Noble, right? Right. <clears throat> so I said, man, I'm going to reconnect with Billy Taylor. I'm going to go down and check it out. He's playing at he's playing at Borders Books and Records. And I can remember thinking, you know, it's kind of odd, right? But okay, whatever, you know. So I'm go, I'm going down. I'm going down. Well, n no one was there. I mean, it was just like Billy Taylor there and wow. sitting at the sitting at the piano, and I'm sitting next to him. And I'll never forget it, right? Because you know, they had the coffee, you know, those uh, bookstores have a coffee, the coffee shop built into the yeah. bookstore, right? So he's sitting there playing, um, uh, playing all the things you are, uh, revert everything, all the changes and everything in the right hand, soloing and playing melody in the left hand, just come flip flop how we're used to playing it, right? And my jaw is just like, on the floor, <laughs> one of the high school girls come up, come up from the coffee bar and says, shh, 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 can you keep it down? You're playing a little too loud. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. No, I know and, and, and then to tell you how nice a guy he was, he nodded his head and he said, okay. And he, and he just, yeah, and that's Billy oh. Taylor. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah, another arrangement. You know, he would even do this thing. Yes. 
He would do that whole whole thing, and it's it's what he had gotten from Art Tatum, but he made it his own. Billy had the um, uh, as you as you know, he had the um, ability to play in the style of so many oh other. Oh my gosh! Things. Right. When he played his own stuff, it was uniquely him. You didn't yeah. really hear that. Right. It was astonishing he could do that. Yeah, there's no doubt he could be the rich little of jazz piano. There's, you know what I mean. He could imitate. Yeah. He could imitate anybody. No doubt about it. So, okay. Exactly. So go back to your. So go back. You. You. So you finish your degree at uh, uh, Connecticut University. University of Connecticut, and um, so then. So then, what happens? You got your. You got your. Did you say composition? Music composition degree, classical composition. Yeah. Okay, so you, you graduate with a music composition degree. And I know you had to say, well, now what? Well, well, you know, remember, yeah, you know, well, um, first of all, uh, when I was in school, there was, a, there was a connecting thing, a connecting thread, because when I was in school, some of us musicians we, uh, in the music department, four vocalists and four instrumentalists, the rhythm section, we, we started a band. We called it Grand Central. And it was like the Manhattan Transfer. We had the four, oh, okay. four part harmony. And, and we used to play weddings and, and bars and restaurants. But we also we used to open for famous groups at the New Haven Jazz Festival. So we'd open for Dave Brubeck and Glenn Miller Orchestra and Lionel Hampton. We'd play for 25, 26,000 wow. people sometimes. So, wow. and that, that, that continued after college. So I did have some gigs and I moved back to Stanford, Connecticut, where my parents were and um, lived with them for two years. And I'd come into Manhattan and I, I would just, there was a lot of music at that time. And remember those, the, the musicians from the fifties were still active. One of my best friends, right. fathers was uh, Sal Salvador, the oh, guitarist wow. who had played with Stan Kenton. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, it was just wonderful. You could, uh, you, you had access to these people. And so, uh, I, um, I just tried to make connections and gig locally and everything. And, uh, I, I would take lessons with, uh, Harold Danko. Oh you know? yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Harold, um, he had played with, uh, Chet Baker and he had just oh. finished playing with Jerry Mulligan. I'd, I'd come in for like He's two fa- lessons. Fabulous pianist two or three lessons a year with him. And, and when I moved to Manhattan, Harold would send me some like beginning piano students that he didn't, he didn't have time to. Yeah. It's very generous, nice person, a great player. Um, so I'd come in a few times a year and just check in with him. And he said, he goes, Ron, you know, um, Jerry Mulligan's looking for an assistant. You know, it's, it's not playing piano, but it's carrying his sax because he can't carry sax. He had back and, you know, you'll go to Europe a few times, whatever, and, and copy, photocopying music. It was very easy. Wow. So, um, and he lived about 15 minutes from me in Connecticut. He lived in Darien. So, um, I'd go over his house like three hours a day and photocopy music and this. And I got to Europe, um, let's see, three times. Uh, we went wow. to, it was incredible. And one, one time was with this big band and we hit all the jazz festivals in Europe, like the North Sea, Montreux. And, and I would, I would just get, you know, all I had to do was get up in the morning, bring the drums to the bus bring the three cases of music to the bus and then basically do nothing for 12 hours. And then yeah. you the, yeah, got to meet Dizzy Gillespie, everybody. And oh, smart. Yeah. How cool yeah. is that? I, I'm curious when you were over at Jerry Mulligan's house, you know, uh, just him, you know, in his jammies and you're, you know, whatever, hanging out. And, and uh, did you ever go, Hey man, let's play a tune. <laughs> no, you know, a couple times we did. He wasn't the kind of person he, he was, you wouldn't really go there with him if he didn't want to do it, but we did play a few times. We played some blues together. I think he just wanted to hear how I could play. And that was a thrill, but you know what he would do? He wasn't a really, um, formally educated musician. He picked up everything he knew from, uh, 
hanging out, you know, yeah. even when he wanted to learn classical music because he was Jerry Mulligan and he had a house in, in Milan. His wife was from Italy. Um, he, he, he had an open invitation to just go to La Scala and, and sit there with the score during rehearsal. So that's how he learned how to write up for an orchestra. But, um, but he was self-taught basically, but he, he would ask me like, um, you know, Ron, uh, can you play this lead sheet, you know, the tune he just wrote? He's like, can you play this? And let me know if you like how I wrote the chords. Like, should it be F minor sixth or D minor seven flat five or something? You know, yeah, he right. my opinion on chord notation sometimes, yeah, nice. which wow. staggered me. But I'll tell you the thing I learned from Jerry the most. I had never seen anybody give 110% every single minute. The, wow. Tuning up his sax. Putting the mouthpiece in his mouth, he'd turn bright red and the veins would protrude on his neck. He was that focused. Inten yeah, intense, right? I've never seen that before. And I've seen wow. it since, you know, um, but 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 never before that. Well, why? Why, uh, you know, it's so wild that you've had such a great, uh, you know, start. Here you are now out of college. You're traveling with Jerry Mulligan. Now, now you're back and professionally, man, and this is where I want to get to now. I mean, holy moly, you've, you, you know, you're, you got a lot of irons in the fire, my friend. So we're going to try to talk about some of those, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, my first, my first uh, introduction to you was, you know, as we, as we all poke around on the internet, you know, and find things, you, you have this program out there. I, I don't know if you're still doing it or if it's all, it's all complete, but you were going through the real book, like, uh, like a, 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 a journey through the real book, like every single tune in the real book. And you were teaching that tune to whoever wanted to sit and listen and learn from you. So it was like a lesson from you on that song. And, and the format was, I'm just going to go from A to Z through the real book. So can you talk about that project? How did that come about? And where is it now? And, and how did, how did it all come together? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm on I'm on 248 out of 400. So, yeah, it's insane. And it, so I gave myself an eight year project, one a week for eight years, but now I'm doing two a week. I, I want to get through this. But um, so yeah, it's it's a, you know my whole YouTube you know we, is an extension of my video course you know at keyboardimprov.com, which right. I started in 2012. And my it's funny how a little German of I just like music. You know, Beethoven did this. And then it became a big symphony, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, that little idea. So, so um, the real, the old real book, as you remember, the fifth edition. Oh, oh I know. Wasn't quite legit yet. Um, yeah. They, they yeah. at the bottom of each page, they they used to have a saw, uh, an album, right? So autumn leaves at the bottom. Yeah, Bill, right, right, right. Yeah. Bill Evans' portrait in jazz. Exactly, right. And then, right. And then so you know, just one 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 uh, one source for this before the internet, because so you can at least hear how the tune goes. You go, yeah. You know, Right. You right. got this great build up now. So, um, so I said, um, with the internet, I said, and this new version of the real book, which is great, but they don't do that. So I said, my first thought was just make a blog post and find for all 400 songs in the new real book. Great to idea. To, to put an album. Yeah, great and idea. I said, well, you know, I can really create a resource. So the first thing I did was I created um, what I call the Jazz Pianist Ultimate Guide to the Real Book, where I have 400 separate pages, one page for each tune, where I list some recordings, I put some links to videos, I put links to resources like transcriptions of the tune or so-and-so soloing, some of my stuff. And I created 400 pages with an index and everything. That's on my Keyboard Improv website. 
And that was getting some, some good feedback, really helping people out. Right. Then I said, you know, I should make a video for each one. And I'm also doing it to keep myself, you know, challenged and everything. Cause, no cause, cause you know, how many of those Ornette Coleman tunes did we ever learn? Yeah, right. <laughs> but if I'm on number 58 and Ornette Coleman's chippy is 59 or something, I can't avoid this. I put this out in the public that I'm going to do every tune in the order of the book. Oh, I know it. I thought I thought you were very brave, man. When I when I when I heard that, I said, like, "Man, now there's a brave soul right there, man." Nothing if not brave. So we're <laughs> clueless. Clueless and bravery are kind of like you know heading headfirst in the battle. And you know, wait a minute, where's my bagpipes? You know, yeah, right. You know, right. I'll, I'll be the bagpipe player for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so like on that tune, for instance, you know, not many people have really solved the problem of playing Ornette Coleman's tunes on piano. Really, he didn't really use piano that much. So what I did on that was I took the melody, which has different rhythms. It's like a bebop melody on Chippy, and I played it in the left hand as quarter notes, and I made it my walking bass line. Yeah. And I improvised. So it makes it, it makes me be uh, creative and solve these problems and then share it with people and try to get them to get beyond the notes. And it's really it, I, the other thing, though, um, that I try to do, you know, being in, in, in I don't think I'm not one of these people who thinks the old days are the good old days. And right. right. The Internet's amazing. It's, it's why we're doing this today. Right. Correct. Right. But, right. Yeah. But on the other hand, there is a, you want to get the best of both worlds and that's not as many people are getting these days. So, so it's all about licks and chord scales and this, and, and not many people are understanding that even these tunes were often sung originally. Right. Right. No, um, these, these are tunes that were pop songs. Yeah. And And you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you you bring up such a great point because in, in the jazz world and with students in the jazz world, they often fall into that trap, right? That old is, uh, you know, old is outdated and new is hip. You know, I just, I just mentioned to this, I just mentioned this on a podcast episode not too long ago that don't, don't, please do not fall in the trap of thinking that traditional shell voicings are somehow inferior to chordal voicings. And, and Thank right, you. right. And don't, and don't fall into the trap of thinking that a seventh chord is somehow superior to a triad or a ninth is superior to a seventh, you know, mm-hmm. and that happen it happens all the time. And, uh, y- you and I, as educators, have to help people know, avoid that trap. Yeah, yeah. I saw, you know, Chick Corea was putting out videos, right, from his home yeah, his last few right. years. And on one of them, I, I forget which one, but he, he, he said when he was starting out as a kid, he played Take the A Train like this. Simple stride because you know, yeah, right, 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 right. And, and these days, people go right to uh, rootless 13s, which is great, <laughs> right. but you don't even know the seventh chord sometimes, and then they get frustrated. And like, what right. if you played 30 tunes it, like that? It's, it's what I call moving laterally, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Well, yeah, well, you know, I and I try, I try to tell young students. I said, you know, what, you know what the best syllabus is for studying jazz? It's already been it's already been cre- created. It's called history. <laughs> right. Start at the beginning, <laughs> and Absolutely. just fo- and just follow the historical uh, evolution of it. But you can't just throw out, you know, a hundred years and jump in at Chick Corea and go, okay, here we go. You know, uh, and and so many, so oftentimes people try to do that as well. Exactly. So the real beginning of the jazz would have been literally jazzing up the melodies. Right. That, well, that's exactly right. Melodies. Right before you're learning your, you know, mix that, well, up. Well, that's the right. Flat. Yeah. Yeah. Scales. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, um, uh, well, I used to, I used to have a teacher who used to say that if you can't improvise with the melody, you have no business trying to improvise. That's great. You know, so, so, okay. So this real book project is going on. You're in the throws of that. You have your website. Uh, what's the title of your website again? Keyboard Uh, improv. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So you got your website, you Mm -hmm. got the real book thing. You got a, a new book that I want to talk about. And you know, all of that, all of these projects, all of these projects can be put under one big umbrella called educator, music educator, music teacher. And in order to be a music educator or a music teacher, to be involved with all the various projects that you're involved with, you have to have a real uh, passion for it and you have to have a heart for it, what I call a teacher's heart. So take a second and talk about your teacher's heart because somewhere along the line, Somewhere along the line, the teacher's heart erupted and you got involved in wanting to share and teach. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, that, that's a tricky one. That's a really good question, Bob. Um, uh, I don't know when it started. It, it probably, you know, with, with you too, it, it probably started much earlier than we think. We were probably the other kids showing the people in the sandbox how to... <laughs> Right amount of water in the pail to get the castle. Yeah, good point. Yeah, you know, right. um, So it, it must have started back then, oh, yeah. because. But I, but I think what it comes down to is the, the, going back to like my high school and college years, and even even when I was playing Broadway. You know, you you, you come you come into contact with a group of um, musicians that that just love it. Right. And you just share and you help each other out and this right. and that, right. you know, and, and I think it's the same thing with, uh, with students. I mean, you know, it, it did start early, you know, in, in high school, um, one of my jobs was as the bus boy at a restaurant. So I'd clear the tables and everything in Stanford, Connecticut. And one day, and they had an upright piano. One day they get this guy who's probably about 30 years old to come in and play and sing. And his name was Tony. We became friends. And, um, after the, the, the shift, he's like packing up and being a musician. I went up and I said, Hey, you sound great. You know, I, I play piano too. And he's like, Oh, play something for me. So I played darn that dream or something, you oh, know? Wow. And, and he wasn't really um, a jazzer. He was more like a, a Billy Joel type and okay, you know, right. he knew some jazz, but he'd been really good at that, you know, but he wanted to learn more about harmony. So he said, can you give me lessons? I'm the bus boy at the restaurant. <laughs> age 17. Oh, and see, that's from my house. Well, well, see, that's you great, know, man. It started there. And, and I, I just love it because I, I find, well, first of all, I love it personally because it's very gratifying to get people to the point where they, they can, where be, the, 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 the water begins to flow. They can start right. becoming fluent. And it's like Billy Taylor used to always tell me, I don't, he probably told you, he said, we learn, we learn to improvise the same way we learn language. Do you ever right. hear him say that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, that's, and, abs- that's 100% true. Yeah. And, and so it, the, the analytical way of thinking, okay, I've got this chord, I've got this scale, or I'm playing the third, that has a place, but it's not the first thing we do when we learn language. Nobody's telling a toddler, okay, we're going to have the theory of adjectives. Okay. (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> that would hold them back. Right. Oh, man. Right. Or, you know, you, you can't say that word again until you say it correctly. Right. right. Oh, oh, my gosh. Right. You, well, so we, you know, being yeah. a rock band and, or, you know, whatever the equivalent is with our music, we need to jam with musicians who are at our level and, yeah. and have so much fun. It never occurred to me as a teenager whether I was playing well or not. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with if, if you're familiar with this book, man. I'm, if you're familiar with this book, I'm going to be thoroughly impressed. So just Probably lie, not. Well, just lie, if, if you're not, just lie to me, and I'll, st- I'll still be thoroughly impressed. This, this is a book by Christopher Small, and uh, it's called Musicine. And Christopher Small is no longer with us, but he was, uh, he, you know, he never wanted to be penned down as a music sociologist or a music psychologist or a music anthropologist. or You know, he, he never wanted, he didn't want labels, but... The one thing he talks about in this book and why I keep it on my shelf <clears throat> is he talks about how we got to stop treating music as a noun and start treating it as a verb. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's what we do. And you bring up this language thing and Billy Taylor referencing language. He, he was saying that m- musical expression, your, your ability, your, your, that it's a birthright. You have a birthright to be musically expressive, just like you have a birthright to speak. You know, uh, uh, and so, our job is to help everybody tap into their birthright of being uh, expressing themselves musically. And like you said, some of us are better with words than others. Some of us can write better than others, but we never say to the person who's not great with words, don't ever talk again. Yeah. We never, we never say to the person who's not good at, is not the greatest at writing saying, Hey, you know what? Don't ever sit down and pour your heart out in a letter. Don't ever do that. You know We never say to somebody who's a bad golfer, stop golfing. Right. right. And they never say that to themselves. But with music, we say it to ourselves sometimes. Exactly. And so our job is to help people, regardless of where they are within the, the confines of their skills, is to have them have the courage. And we'll talk about that a little bit because you talk about that in your book. The courage to sit down and just express yourself musically at whatever level that that you play and it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. There's another aspect too, which you're, you're sort of implying too. the benefits we get from playing music are independent of our quote talent or ability. Correct. Just the, 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 the you know, the, the, the happy chemicals that are released. Oh my gosh. The emotional, right? the de-stressing, the community yeah. aspect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I tell students all the time, geez, if, if the criteria was that we all had to play with the technical, uh, the technical skills and ability of Oscar Peterson, well then here's my piano. You can have it. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's over for, it's over for me. I can no longer play, you know? So exactly right. So, um, so, okay. So yeah, you obviously have this teacher's heart. So let's talk about, let's talk about this book that you have. It, I, I love it. The inner game of piano improvisation. Fantastic. So how did this project come about? Well, you know, um, uh, I, I've been writing, uh, well, one of the things I started doing in 2012 when I created my keyboardimprov.com website was I started writing a blog. You know, and, and first, with, like with many bloggers, it, at first, it's sort of a weird term, right? Bloggers. I'm a music- <laughs> I, I've right? never got, I never got it, but anyway, yeah, I'm a blogger too. <laughs> so whatever that means. So um, I, you, you write like once a month, and you get an idea for something. You write another, and then I started challenging myself to write every day for a while. I don't, I don't, I don't write every day anymore, but but uh, over uh, ten years, I, I have like I don't know. 
1300 blog posts. Oh, man. And then, um, you know, and a weekly newsletter. I do a newsletter just to my uh, students, my online students. And then I do another one to mailing list. People sign up for my newsletter. And so I, I probably had about uh, 1800 of these things I've written over the years. So um, last December 2021, I took my kids skiing in upstate New York, and uh, and I don't ski. So if, if, if you or anybody else is watching has been in a ski lodge for eight hours, two days in a row, you know that you want to find something to do. So I brought my laptop, and I had my cup of tea and hot chocolate for them when they came in. And I, I said, you know what? There's a book in here. So I, I created a Word document, and I spent eight hours dragging like about 250 of these that had to do with the inner game, the mental game, the healthy attitude about improvisation and some nuts and bolts and practice ideas. And then the next day I went back and I spent eight hours dividing it into 20 chapters. And then um, I spent the next, and I thought it was almost done. Well, eight months later, (laughs) eight months later, uh, I I, uh, managed to, uh, 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 organize it in a way that has a flow. I cut out redundancies and I, I have chapter. It, it takes the, the reader on a journey yeah. from uh, what is improvisation, relating it to our everyday life and that we are creative and getting over that to um, letting the music flow, um, the cure for, uh, you know, practice paralysis. I call it when people yeah, are right. so overwhelmed that they don't do anything, right? Right. Cure right. for practice paralysis. All the way through, I have a whole chapter on practicing. I call it um, Into the Woodshed. Yes, I saw and, it. Um, I read it. One, yeah, one on jazz band, and then um, going beyond what we think is possible with ourselves. And I also made um, over three hours of audio links. So see, that's book- a, th- yeah, that's really impressive, man. Because in in the book, right, you click on those links or you you know scan the link, and it takes you right to a video presentation that you do, and it's really yeah. impressive, man. I, I as I was reading your book and going through it, I was you know what the only thing, well before it just. After I was I, after the enjoyment of the content, I the, my second thought is, golly, how much work, how much time did that all that take? Because that's that's quite a project. Yeah. Yes. And I I wrote some new stuff for it too. It's not just the the blog post, but it's, I think it's I think I hope when you read it, you felt it read as a book. It's not you yeah, can read no. sections, but it has a flow and oh, and very very user friendly. So what I want to do. I want to do it. Can I just, I'm just going to throw out a couple chapter titles and I want you to talk about those chapters. Cause I love the chapter titles. I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw out the, the chapter and then let you talk about it. Okay. Right, so yeah. so the, the very first chapter, what is improvisation? Oh, come on, man. Tell me. Yeah. You know, in, in our society now, we're, you know, we, we, we have such a high mental bar that we think, to be to improvise is this huge creative step that that you know in in, in order to play well on piano and improvise right. the, the planets have to align right in the right way I, lightning has to hit me twice <laughs> and i have to play 10 times better than i've ever played before in order to sound decent right right that, that's improvising but you know um but we improvise every time we go to the the refrigerator to see what's in there to make a sandwich and if there's no mayo we use mustard that's improvising Right. Every time we we spread the mayonnaise on the sandwich, we improvise the amount. Right. 
Right. We are improv- always improvisation. Right. Yeah, yeah. We're improvising every time we speak. We don't we don't know. what. I'm not going to plan out. OK, when I see my friend, I'm going to be sure to ask her how her day was. And then I'll segue into this. You know, we improvise. We, we use the language and music's no different. It's like Billy Taylor said. So that's yeah, yeah. improvisation. Well, you're already improvising every day. Almost everything we do in life is improv- improvising. Yeah, once somebody starts to realize that, hopefully the fear of doing that with the piano starts to evaporate and 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 go away. You know, so I think I, I loved it. You you addressed it right away, very first chapter. So okay, so uh, okay, how about this one? And this I think this is a great one. You have a chapter called Operation Theory Overload, <clears throat> and you know, in in today's age, <clears throat> I got to just tell you, man, it was bad enough when we were growing up, right? It was it was yeah. bad enough we could go we would go get books, you know, we would buy the entire Jamie Abersaw catalog and begin reading it, you know, there was information that we could get our hands on, but today. Oh my goodness, it's even worse, right? With the internet, there's all kinds of videos and and documents and PDFs and everything that you can have access to. So it's easy for somebody to overdose, overload on theory. So talk about this chapter and what was your goal with inserting this into your book? Okay, yeah. So first of all, I, I really want to point out that almost every book and video made is 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 probably very valid and well-intentioned and expert oh, no doubt and all right. that right no Take doubt it by itself the challenge is that there, it's general advice it's it's not saying to a particular person okay you're at this stage right now you can play right. tpa train like this i think the best step for you might be to learn the rootless voicings now but you let's take a little step back and work on playing it in tempo with a simple stride and right. you're going to learn how to play the modes you're going to learn you know so so that's what's missing and you combine uh millions of um uh uh, uh, with um, dictums like you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do the five ways to do this, the five ways to do that. You, if you want to sound good, you have to learn these thirty techniques, um, and you multiply that by however many instructors and students are. It's this avalanche of overload. Right. Right. And I think if, if the, the reason I came up with that title is I think if 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 anybody or a group of people in say nineteen eighty wanted to prevent future generations from feeling good about themselves and really learning how to improvise or play jazz or rock or whatever, they would invent operation theory. Okay. We're going to overload them with theory <laughs> to the point where they, and I talk about practice paralysis where they just right. don't do anything. Right. It's right. amazing. It's amazing. So, yeah. well, but, and you know, you know what else is interesting that I have found in my years of teaching and I'm guilty. Of, I, I personally have been guilty of this in my journey. Um, isn't it funny how we hear things that were never stated in reading these books and getting advice? Like, for instance, I'll give you a great example. I, I hear every jazz musician on the face of planet Earth in every book that I've ever read. I've heard musicians say that you should <clears throat> you should practice in all 12 keys. Right. Good advice. And I, I used to I used to read that. I used to read that advice or read that sentence as an incomplete sentence. And I would put at the end of that sentence every day. And I realized that no, I realized that no one told me to practice in all twelve keys every day. They told me to practice in all twelve keys. That's interesting. Yes, yes. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So I, I actually put upon myself with the, I was reading into the material that which wasn't even there, 
making my my journey even harder, even more difficult. And when I realized that, wait a minute, I don't have to practice. I, yes, I should be practicing in all 12 keys, but not every day. <laughs> That's right. Or you could somebody else might say, I have to practice jazz standards in every key. Right. So right. Like, maybe the way to start would be playing Mary Had a Little Lamb in F sharp. <laughs> Right. And there just go. Right. That's that's the part that we often need somebody to guide us with. Right. Well, well, that's exactly right. You know, uh, transcriptions is a great uh, uh, a great example of this. I start I start students with transcribing uh, 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 Hank Williams senior tune. Great. Or, or Willie Nelson tune. Something, yeah. Right. Who says you have to your first transcription has to be Bill Evans, for heaven's sakes. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? You know, yeah. so, but, but it's interesting how we get this theory overload going and all, and all we start piling it on, whether intentional or not intentional, it happens. And, uh, it's like you said, paralysis, it, it, it actually prevents us. It's stagnation. It prevents us from moving forward. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So I got another title for you here. Speaking of that, which is a perfect segue in this, enjoying the journey is another chapter that you have. Enjoying the journey. Yeah. I mean, um, I think classical pianists, uh, at least some of them uh, can do this, you know, uh, certainly rock and pop. But uh, but a classical pianist might look at a piece of music that's very difficult, like a Chopin etude. And it's kind of fun working it out. Like, okay, I'm going to play this left hand 30,000 times, just a little faster <laughs> each time. Right. You know? um, and that, that they're, enjoying, they're enjoying the journey. They're not waiting until they can play it perfectly to enjoy it. At least yeah, some, of them, point. some of them right. do go the other way. But with, with jazz, we tend to say, okay, you know, I, I can't play giant steps at light speed. You know, so I'm a failure and I can't play and I, and I hate this. But, you know, what if you, uh, another thing I, I talk about, I think on one of the audios is, what if you took giant steps? And, okay, my journey right now is to just get to know these chords. Yeah, good point. And I'm just going to listen to them. And I'm actually going to enjoy listening to them. Right. Even though I can't play it fast, I can't play them in root, uh, rootless voicings, I can't improvise like John Coltrane. Yeah. Right. right. right? Enjoy right. the journey. So this is the thing that, that um, I did get from that high school rock band in our four ways that forays into jazz. We would just play one chord, A minor seven, and improvise. It never even occurred to me that I needed to practice it in all 12 keys that same day. I mean, for months, we just played one chord for 20 minutes a day. And we loved it. <clears throat> well, you know what's funny about that, Ron? Is I tell students all the time that's actually the that's actually the highest form of musical expression that 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 you can do when you bathe in a sound when you, when you have the courage just to sit down and bathe in that sound um, that takes uh, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of joy in that there's a lot of fun that can take place in that there's a lot of la uh, uh, latitude that you have with that you know and and I've always used as an example I always I always tell students in my office in my studio here I said you know. <clears throat> If Miles Davis came back to life and came into this room right now <clears throat> as he was getting his horn out and he would say, what are we going to play? And if I said to Miles Davis, we're going to jam on C minor, as he was blowing into his mouthpiece, he would say, cool, who, who's going first, you or me? In other words, that would not be a shocking statement to him. That's I mean, right. Right? That would not be a shocking statement to him. He would go like, cool, what's the groove and who's going first? 
I mean, after all, so what, right? (laughs) Basically, you know, let you stretch. So it's funny how something like that, that can be, a lot of times, again, students will perceive that as being rudimental. One chord, one chord. Are you kidding me? How how babyish is that? It's not babyish. I think it's the highest form of musical exploration that you can you can undertake. Oh, absolutely. And and look at uh, look at um, uh, ragas in India. Yeah, right. Spells or Gregorian chant or different right. uh, Irish Irish music. You know, traditional. It, it's on one scale, right? Right. Right. You go to a, you go to a, a medieval fair or a Renaissance fair, and they're playing right. Gregorian boat. <laughs> That's not very different. Than, <laughs> right. Right? It's just a, just a different rhythm, but it's right. Not, it's type of music. Right, right. Excellent point, man. Okay, so uh, here's a here's another title, another chapter in your book, which I think is um, very important, and I think a lot of times students kind of we miss the the boat here. Listening, listening, listening. Hmm. Right. Great, so, great, cha- great chapter, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, so this uh, musician I studied with in college, Hale Smith, um, he had the best ears out of anybody I've ever met. Best musical wow. ears. I mean, wow. literally, he could he could um, he could look at a Stravinsky score. And uh, if somebody left out a note, he would know which note was left out. You wow. know, you know, unbelievable. Um, you know, like people. You know, famous musicians would look up to him, you know, for his his ear and everything. He had a statement that shocked me. He said, a musician that cannot hear is like a painter that cannot see. Mm. And and I realized how vague my conception of hearing, of listening to music was, you know, like not hearing details or or I remember the first time in college when uh, he or somebody else suggested that I improvise and um, and I just play the notes I hear in my head. which sounds so obvious right now to do that. But that seemed weird. Like, really? I have to listen to what's in my head and play? And um, so uh, it all comes down to listening. And and I think it was Count Basie. I'm not sure. I, th- I think in, uh, was it Good Morning Blues, his autobiography? I think he might have mentioned that he had a one-word answer to any musical question. So anybody asking the question, he'd say, listen. So ask any question. How do I keep a steady beat? Listen. Listen. And what am I listening for? I'm listening for the space between the notes. I'm listening to my own internal flow. I'm listening to the other musicians. Listening will solve um, almost any musical problem. And then when the part that it doesn't solve, then you bring the theory into it, not the other way around. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The listening followed by listening followed by a very important question. The question should always be, what was that? What Mm. was that? And what, what I mean by that, <clears throat> I tell students all the time, because I, you know, you've probably experienced this with your teaching. <clears throat> when it comes to listening and it comes to musical ears, like the quote that you just said, you know, um, a musician who cannot hear is like a painter who cannot see, right? Well, a lot of times if, when saying that to a student, like a beginning student, <clears throat> fear will come over their face because they're thinking in the back of their mind, <clears throat> I can't hear. I, I, don't, I don't hear like what you're hearing. And I always remind them that, <clears throat> I always say to them, uh, if I said to you, dog barking, do you hear that? And they say, yes. So we don't need a dog barking right now for you to hear that, right? Correct. If I say helicopter, can you hear that? 
how about police car siren? Can you hear that? And they, of course, the answer to all that is yes. I said, I said, these are, I said, see, these are sounds that you have become familiar with, that you can identify. Hmm. Well, music is sound. And so if you, do, if you can't hear a major seventh right now, it's not because your ears are bad. You haven't been introduced to the sound. And you haven't practiced and studied the sound so that your ears can recall it just like it recalled dog barking or helicopter, right? Now joy comes over their face because they realize, wow, well, then introduce me to the sounds. And that's where you and I come in as educators. We have to introduce people, I I always say all the time, to the shapes and sounds of music. And once you get introduced to those shapes and sounds, it's amazing how smart you become. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And also listening is like you were saying before with music or whatever. It's, it's a verb. Right. It's not, it's not an it's not it's it's not the ideal that you want to get to in 30 years to start with. It's right. it's, it's towards that direction. It's like walking. Right. It's like moving towards there. I'm walking. I'm you're listening. Wa- you're exactly right. Starting that's, where I am and I'm trying to get over there. I'm listening. That's, that's exactly right. Okay, you mentioned this chapter. You mentioned this chapter a little earlier too, so I want you just to expound on a uh, expound on it a little bit. Into the woodshed. Into the right? woodshed, yeah. It's a it's a you know, going into the woodshed is a very common expression amongst amongst musicians, but for those who may not be familiar with that, uh, talk to us a little bit what you mean about going into the woodshed. Okay, so um, you, you picture a house with a backyard, you know, in, in a wooded area usually, or maybe not. And uh, in the days before central heating, people would have a shed, you know, usually a wallless, uh, without walls, but a, a roof to protect the, from the rain. And they'd have their firewood there. That's called a woodshed. And um, it's not really originally for pianists, but with uh, saxophonists and very loud horns, if they practiced... Um, repetitive things that maybe the neighbors didn't always want to hear or the family members scales and such right, they would right. go out to the woodshed to practice so they're they're protected from the elements and it's a little farther away you know <laughs> right. um i don't think charlie parker had a woodshed and his mother got apparently got a uh, threatened with eviction because he was playing the horn about 13 16 hours a day for three I, years I, yeah something. i can yeah i can understand no. so um so uh, now it's a generic term that means even for piano players in your house that we go into the woodshed when we sit down and we really buckle down okay i'm gonna really get this so i use that as kind of a fun title of uh, i think it's the longest chapter in the book it's with uh practice ideas on how to practice what to practice practice schedules um uh specific ideas on how to practice yeah that's fantastic angles yeah that's fantastic and then the last chapter of the book i thought was so um wonderful and i'm glad you put it in there the last chapter in your book is entitled Getting Beyond What We Think Is Possible. Yeah. So important. So t- talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, um, uh, it, it, there's so much there because, because the truth is, no, nobody really talks about this, but we actually don't know what's possible for us. <laughs> right. We really have no idea what's possible for ourselves. I mean, and actually, I think um, one place we do see it in life, and it, it's 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 very unfortunate, though. But but people are put in positions that are impossible, whether it's in um, situations of war or things where where you know you have to stay up for three days without sleeping, whatever, and and or helping people. Um, that are hurt and stuff. And, and, and you find time after time, people go way beyond what they could have ever thought they could do. Right. I, I've never been in that position myself. 
I know people who who have. So I'm not I'm not saying it lightly, but it just goes to show us as an example that we can we we have uh, potential yep. and strength and abilities. Right. That, and, and, and music's a great place to, to explore right. that. Like, so you can look at it in two different ways. You could say, well, um, I, 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 I can't ever envision myself playing John Coltrane's Countdown at, you know, at that tempo. Right. Uh, hey, I can envision myself playing it. I'm going to rock you. Okay. There. I can do that. Yeah, you can. And, I can. and if I can play it at, what, 50 beats per minute, right. then I'll try it at 52. Right. And then after a few right. months, I can probably get up to about 150, 200, 250. Or in a few years, if I'm a beginner, just try it now, come back to it. And I'm going way beyond what I thought was possible. Yeah. And, and you know what? And in the long run, you might end up just enjoying it better at 120 anyway. Absolutely. And there's no reason why you can't. Uh, that's can't. exactly right. That's, ex- exactly. that's exactly right. So, you know, uh, and, and don't we do that? Oftentimes I hear recordings and I always go like, well, I like that tune played at a much slower tempo. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Because you can actually think you can express something. And then right. the other thing are these sort of quantum leaps. Like one time, um, I, in addition to jazz, I used to play a lot of Broadway. I helped create a show called Swing on a Star in the 90s. And, wow. and, and so I got called into this rehearsal once to, to play uh, for two weeks. And with, without any information, they just said, show up at a rehearsal studio on, on Broadway and 18th Street and at, at 10 in the morning. And I walk in and there's uh, 16 dancers all dressed in black. And uh, Gwen Burden, the le- legendary Broadway dancer, and um, I met once. She, she did like me. I don't know why, but she <laughs> which helped me. So I walk in and I realize it's the rehearsals for uh, the show called Fosse, which eventually made it to Broadway. They did a workshop performance of it for two weeks. And so I'm not a Fosse expert or anything. You know, I, I, I'm there because I can read music and I can play for dancers. That's why I was hired. And, and I'm a good musician. So, um, so I show up and... Um, she looks at me and she says, uh, do you know Big Noise from Winnetka? And, and you know, I, didn't, I had never heard it at the time. It's a Gene Krupa big band. Yeah. You probably know. But I had never heard of it at that time. And um, I said, uh, no. And one of the dancers says, um, oh, I've got a cassette. She says, Any- I said, anybody have the music? And, of course, nobody has the music. And they had already choreographed to it. And they want me to play that arrangement. Oh, my gosh. So, so one of the dancers said, it was something Fosse had done early on. So one of the dancers says, I have a cassette of it. So they played the cassette tape in front of 16 people, the producer, Richard Maltby, the uh, choreographer, Chet Walker, and Gwen Verdon, who's choreographing this, and she's one of the producers as Fosse's widow. So, um, so they play it once, and I somehow, something clicked. I knew what key was in. I knew every single note and chord on that recording. It was about two minutes wow. worth. I knew every rhythmic hit that they were going to do their jazz Fosse stuff to. And I just started playing it while they choreographed. Whoa. And, and um, I couldn't do that right now. But something in that moment showed me what I am capable of at times. And then it, it, it comes through, you know, when I'm doing a real book video or I'm in yeah. performance now. But that was a glimpse of, of much higher functioning in music than I'd ever wow. experienced myself yeah. before. <clears throat> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, yeah. you know, <clears throat> Ron, like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, here we are. Man, we could go on all afternoon yeah. 
I mean, we can go on all afternoon. So you're going to have to prom- make me a promise here before we wrap things up, man. Will you come back and, and join me on jazz panel skills again here in the near future? Oh, absolutely, Bob. Having a great time. Had a great yeah, time. Yeah, so much, so much to talk about. And and uh, I, I definitely want to have you come back on. So um, where do folks, uh, the book again, it, the, at Amazon, correct? Yeah, yeah. You can find The Inner Game of Piano Improvisation at Amazon. The, and- you're what? You're your website address website, again keyboardimprov.com right and and they can find all your videos youtube uh, your YouTube, real book ron rotos d r o t o s uh, keyboard improv ron rotos yeah well and i'm going to post all that i'm going to post all that in the in the podcast episode as well that people can get 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 in touch with you and and uh get uh get access to all your great materials and information man you know on behalf of the entire jazz world i want to just thank you for Everything that you're doing, you know, every all the various uh, aspects of education and jazz education that you are, you have your feet in all these different uh, in different places. And I just, I just can't thank you enough for all that you're doing for everyone, for 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 professional musicians like myself and for students that are that are at the beginning of their journey. Thank you. Oh, well, I, I'm speechless, but thank you so much. I mean, it's, it, it just, it like, like with you, it's so gratifying and it's total immersion and teaching, performing. We get so much back from, uh, the people we're, we're, uh, we're, you know, dealing with and helping. So, uh, it's, oh, it's a no doubt. Thank you for having me here. <clears throat> Ron, it's been, it's been my pleasure. Thanks again. We're going to have you back on jazz piano skills here shortly. Anytime. Thank you. Well, I hope you have found this interview with Mr. Ron Drotos to be insightful and beneficial. You know, one of my mentors and teachers, Al Franzen, would say to me after every lesson, never forget, the greatest thing about music is the people you meet through it. And the privilege of meeting and spending time with Ron simply confirms Al's sentiment 100%. Now, don't forget, if you are a Jazz Piano Skills member, I will see you online Thursday evening at the Jazz Piano Skills Masterclass. That's going to be 8 p.m. Central Time to discuss this podcast episode featuring Ron in greater detail and to answer any questions that you may have about the study of jazz in general. As always, you can reach me by phone through the Dallas School of Music, 972-380-8050. My extension here is 211. Or you can send me an email, Dr. Lawrence, drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com. Or you can leave me a voice, a voice message through that nifty little widget found throughout the Jazz Piano Skills website called SpeakPipe. Okay, there is my cue. That's it for now. And until next week, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the pearls of wisdom shared by Ron Grotos. And most of all, have fun as you discover learn, and play jazz piano.